0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me tonight. Tonight, two short stories by one of the masters of the form, William Somerset Maugham. The first story, Mr. Know All, was written shortly after the First World War. Maugham was an inveterate traveler and had been in the Secret Service. He was a keen observer of people and based many of his stories on people he encountered on his travels. This story is a fine study not only of the man everyone came to call Mr. Knowall, but also of the fictional narrator and his prejudices, which are, much to his own surprise, subject to change. Mr. Knowall by William Somerset Maugham I was prepared to dislike Max Calada even before I knew him. The war had just finished, and the passenger traffic in the ocean going liners was heavy. Accommodation was very hard to get, and you had to put up with whatever the agents chose to offer you. You could not hope for a cabin to yourself, and I was thankful to be given one in which there were only two berths. But when I was told the name of my companion, my heart sank. It suggested closed portholes and the night air rigidly excluded. It was bad enough to share a cabin for fourteen days with anyone. I was going from San Francisco to Yokohama, but I should have looked upon it with less dismay if my fellow-passenger's name had been Smith or Brown. When I went on board I found Mr. Calotta's baggage already below. I did not like the look of it. There were too many labels on the suitcases, and the wardrobe trunk was too big.' He had unpacked his toilet things, and I observed that he was a patron of the excellent Monsieur Coty, for I saw on the washing-stand his scent, his hair-wash, and his brilliantine. Mr. Collada's brushes, ebony with his monogram in gold, would have been all the better for a scrub. I did not at all like Mr. Calada. I made my way into the smoking-room, I called for a pack of cards, and began to play patience. I had scarcely started before a man came up to me and asked me if he was right in thinking my name was so-and-so. "'I am Mr. Calada, he added, with a smile that showed a row of flashing teeth, and sat down. "'Oh, yes, we're sharing a cabin, I think. Bit of luck, I call it. You never know who you're going to be put with. I was jolly glad when I heard you were English. I'm all for us English sticking together when we're abroad, if you understand what I mean.' I blinked. "'Are you English?' I asked, perhaps tactlessly. "'Rather, you don't think I look an American, do you? British to the backbone, that's what I am.' To prove it, Mr. Calada took out of his pocket a passport and airily waved it onto my nose. King George has many strange subjects. Mr. Calada was short and of a sturdy build, clean-shaven and dark-skinned, with a fleshy, hooked nose, and very large, lustrous, and liquid eyes. His long black hair was sleek and curly, He spoke with a fluency in which there was nothing English, and his gestures were exuberant. I felt pretty sure that a closer inspection of that British passport would have betrayed the fact that Mr. Calado was born under a bluer sky than is generally seen in England. "'What will you have?' he asked me. I looked at him doubtfully. Prohibition was in force, and to all appearances the ship was bone-dry. When I am not thirsty I do not know what I dislike more—ginger ale or lemon squash— "'But Mr. Calada flashed an Oriental smile at me. "'Whisky and soda or a dry martini, you have only to say the word. "'From each of his hip pockets he fished a flask "'and laid them on the table before me. "'I chose the martini, and calling the steward "'he ordered a tumbler of ice and a couple of glasses. "'A very good cocktail,' I said. "'Well, there are plenty more where that came from, "'and if you've got any friends on board, "'you tell them you've got a pal "'who's got all the liquor in the world.' Mr. Collada was chatty. He talked of New York and of San Francisco. He discussed plays, pictures, and politics. He was patriotic. The Union Jack is an impressive piece of drapery, but when it is flourished by a gentleman from Alexandria or Beirut, I cannot but feel that it loses somewhat in dignity. Mr. Calada was familiar. I do not wish to put on airs, but I cannot help feeling that it is seemly in a total stranger to put Mr. before my name when he addresses me. Mr. Calada, doubtless to set me at my ease, used no such formality. I did not like Mr. Calada. I had put aside the cards when he sat down, but now, thinking that for this first occasion our conversation had lasted long enough, I went on with my game. The three on the four, said Mr. Calada. There is nothing more exasperating when you are playing patience than to be told where to put the card you have turned up before you have had a chance to look for yourself. "'It's coming out, it's coming out,' he cried. "'The ten on the nave. With rage and hatred in my heart, I finished. Then he seized the pack. "'Do you like card tricks?' "'No, I hate card tricks,' I answered. "'Well, I'll just show you this one.' He showed me three. Then I said I would go down to the dining-room and get my seat at table. "'Oh, that's all right,' he said. "'I've already taken a seat for you.' I thought that as we were in the same stateroom, we might just as well sit at the same table. I did not like Mr Calada. I not only shared a cabin with him and ate three meals a day at the same table, but I could not walk around the deck without his joining me. It was impossible to snub him. It never occurred to him that he was not wanted. He was certain that you were as glad to see him as he was to see you. In your own house you might have kicked him downstairs and slammed the door in his face without the suspicion dawning on him that he was not a welcome visitor. He was a good mixer, and in three days knew everyone on board. He ran everything. He managed the sweeps, conducted the auctions, collected money for prizes at the sports, got up quite in golf matches, organized the concert, and arranged the fancy-dress ball. He was everywhere and always. He was certainly the best-hated man in the ship we called him Mr. Knowall. even to his face. He took it as a compliment. But it was at mealtimes that he was most intolerable. For the better part of an hour, then, he had us at his mercy. He was hearty, jovial, loquacious, and argumentative. He knew everything better than anybody else, and it was an affront to his overweening vanity that you should disagree with him. He would not drop a subject, however unimportant, till he had brought you round to his way of thinking.' the possibility that he could be mistaken never occurred to him. He was the chap who knew. We sat at the doctor's table. Mr. Calada would certainly have had it all his own way, for the doctor was lazy and I was frigidly indifferent, except for a man called Ramsay, who was also there. He was as dogmatic as Mr. Calada, and resented bitterly the Levantine's cocksureness. The discussions they had were acrimonious and interminable." Ramsey was in the American Consular Service and was stationed at Kobe. He was a great heavy fellow from the Midwest, with loose fat under a tight skin, and he bulged out of his ready-made clothes. He was on his way back to resume his post, having been on a flying visit to New York to fetch his wife, who had been spending a year at home. Mrs. Ramsay was a very pretty little thing, with pleasant manners and a sense of humor. The Consular Service is ill-paid, and she was always dressed very simply. But she knew how to wear her clothes. She achieved an effect of quiet distinction. I should not have paid any particular attention to her, but that she possessed a quality that may be common enough in women, but nowadays is not obvious in their demeanour. You could not look at her without being struck by her modesty. It shone in her like a flower on a coat. One evening at dinner the conversation by chance drifted to the subject of pearls— There had been in the papers a good deal of talk about the culture pearls which the cunning Japanese were making, and the doctor remarked that they must inevitably diminish the value of real ones. They were very good already, they would soon be perfect. Mr. Collada, as was his habit, rushed the new topic. He told us all that was to be known about pearls. I do not believe Ramsay knew anything about them at all." but he could not resist the opportunity to have a fling at the Levantine, and in five minutes we were in the middle of a heated argument. I had seen Mr. Kalada vehement and voluble before, but never so voluble and vehement as now. At last something that Ramsay said stung him, for he thumped the table and shouted, "'Well, I ought to know what I'm talking about. I'm going to Japan just to look into this Japanese pearl business.' I'm in the trade, and there's not a man in it who won't tell you that what I say about pearls goes. I know all the best pearls in the world, and what I don't know about pearls isn't worth knowing." Here was news for us, for Mr. Calada, with all his loquacity, had never told anyone what his business was. We only knew vaguely that he was going to Japan on some commercial errand. He looked round the table triumphantly. They'll never be able to get a culture pearl that an expert like me can't tell with half an eye. He pointed to a chain that Mrs. Ramsey wore. "'You take my word for it, Mrs. Ramsey. That chain you're wearing will never be worth a cent less than it is now.' Mrs. Ramsey, in her modesty, flushed a little and slipped the chain inside her dress. Ramsey leaned forward. He gave us all a look, and a smile flickered in his eyes. "'That's a pretty chain of Mrs. Ramsey's, isn't it?' "'I noticed it at once,' answered Mr. Collada. "'Gee,' I said to myself, "'those are pearls, all right.' I didn't buy it myself, of course. I'd be interested to know how much you think it cost. Oh, in the trade, somewhere around fifteen thousand dollars. But, if it was bought on Fifth Avenue, I shouldn't be surprised to hear that anything up to thirty thousand was paid for it.' Ramsey smiled grimly. "'You'll be surprised to hear that Mrs. Ramsay bought that string at a department store the other day before we left New York, for eighteen dollars.' Mr. Collada flushed. "'Rot! It's not only real—' but it's as fine a string for its size as I've ever seen.' "'Will you bet on it? I'll bet you a hundred dollars it's imitation.' "'Done!' "'Oh, Elmer, you can't bet on a certainty,' said Mrs. Ramsay. She had a smile on her lips, and her tone was gently deprecating. "'Can't I? If I get a chance of easy money like that, I should be all sorts of a fool not to take it.' "'But how can it be proved?' she continued. "'It's only my word against Mr. Collada's.' "'Let me look at the chain, and if it's imitation I'll tell you quickly enough.' "'I can afford to lose a hundred dollars,' said Mr. Collada. "'Take it off, dear. Let the gentleman look at it as much as he wants.' Mrs. Ramsey hesitated a moment. She put her hands to the clasp. "'I can't undo it,' she said. "'Mr. Collada will just have to take my word for it.' I had a sudden suspicion that something unfortunate was about to occur, but I could think of nothing to say. Ramsey jumped up. "'I'll undo it.' He handed the chain to Mr. Collada. The Levantine took a magnifying glass from his pocket and closely examined it. A smile of triumph spread over his smooth and swarthy face. He handed back the chain. He was about to speak. Suddenly he caught sight of Mrs. Ramsay's face. It was so white that she looked as if she were about to faint. She was staring at him with wide and terrified eyes. They held a desperate appeal. It was so clear that I wondered why her husband did not see it. Mr. Colada stopped with his mouth opened. He flushed deeply. You could almost see the effort he was making over himself. "'I was mistaken,' he said. "'It's a very good imitation, but of course as soon as I looked through my glass I saw that it wasn't real. I think eighteen dollars is just about as much as the damn thing's worth.' He took out his pocketbook and from it a hundred-dollar note. He handed it to Ramsay without a word." Perhaps that'll teach you not to be so cocksure another time, my young friend, said Ramsay, as he took the note. I noticed that Mr. Collada's hands were trembling. The story spread over the ship as stories do, and he had to put up with a good deal of chaff that evening. It was a fine joke that Mr. Nowall had been caught out, but Mrs. Ramsay retired to her stateroom with a headache. Next morning I got up and began to shave. Mr. Collada lay on his bed smoking a cigarette. Suddenly there was a small scraping sound, and I saw a letter pushed under the door. I opened the door and looked out. There was nobody there. I picked up the letter and saw that it was addressed to Max Calada. The name was written in block letters. I handed it to him. Who's this from? He opened it. Oh. He took out of the envelope not a letter, but a hundred-dollar note. He looked at me, and again he reddened. "'He tore the envelope into little bits and gave it to me. "'Do you mind just throwing them out of the porthole?' "'I did as he asked, and then I looked at him with a smile. "'No one likes being made to look a perfect damn fool,' he said. "'Were the pearls real?' "'If I had a pretty little wife, I shouldn't let her spend a year in New York while I stayed at Kobe,' said he. "'At that moment I did not entirely dislike Mr. Carlotta.' He reached out for his pocketbook and carefully put in it the hundred-dollar note. Our second story tonight is called The Happy Man. It begins with the narrator's reflections on giving advice to other people. Is it at all wise, should we venture to do it? Life is such a chancy business, after all. I wonder whether Mom ever answers his question one way or another. Perhaps he is wise enough to let us decide for ourselves. The Happy Man by Somerset Maugham It is a dangerous thing to order the lives of others, and I have often wondered at the self-confidence of politicians, reformers, and such like, who are prepared to force upon their fellows measures that must alter their manners, habits, and points of view. I have always hesitated to give advice, for how can one advise another how to act unless one knows that other as well as one knows oneself. Heaven knows I know little enough of myself, I know nothing of others. We can only guess at the thoughts and emotions of our neighbors. Each one of us is a prisoner in a solitary tower, and he communicates with the other prisoners who form mankind by conventional signs that have not quite the same meaning for them as for himself. And life, unfortunately, is something that you can lead but once, Mistakes are often irreparable, and who am I that I should tell this one or that how he should lead it? Life is a difficult business, and I have found it hard enough to make my own a complete and rounded thing. I have not been tempted to teach my neighbor what he should do with his. But there are men who flounder at the journey's start, the way before them is confused and hazardous, and on one occasion, however unwillingly, I have been forced to point the finger of fate. Sometimes men have said to me, What shall I do with my life? and I have seen myself for a moment wrapped in the dark cloak of destiny. Once I know that I advised well. I was a young man, and I lived in a modest apartment in London near Victoria Station. Late one afternoon, when I was beginning to think that I had worked enough for that day, I heard a ring at the bell. I opened the door to a total stranger. He asked me my name. I told him he asked if he might come in. Certainly. I led him into my sitting-room and begged him to sit down. He seemed a trifle embarrassed. I offered him a cigarette, and he had some difficulty in lighting it without letting go of his hat. When he had satisfactorily achieved this feat, I asked him if I should not put it on a chair for him. He quickly did this, and while doing it dropped his umbrella. "'I hope you don't mind my coming to see you like this,' he said. "'My name is Stevens, and I am a doctor.' "'You're in the medical, I believe?' "'Yes, but I don't practice.' "'No, I know. I've just read a book of yours about Spain, and I wanted to ask you about it.' "'It's not a very good book, I'm afraid. The fact remains that you know something about Spain, and there's no one else I know who does, and I thought perhaps you wouldn't mind giving me some information. I shall be very glad.' He was silent for a moment. He reached out for his hat, and holding it in one hand, absent-mindedly stroked it with the other. I surmised that it gave him confidence. "'I hope you won't think it very odd for a perfect stranger to talk to you like this.' He gave an apologetic laugh. "'I'm not going to give you the story of my life. When people say this to me, I always know that it is precisely what they are going to do. I do not mind. In fact, I rather like it. I was brought up by two old aunts. I've never been anywhere. I've never done anything. I've been married for six years. I have no children.' "'I'm a medical officer at the Camberwell Infirmary. "'I can't stick it any more.' "'There was something very striking in the short, sharp sentences he used. "'They had a forcible ring. "'I had not given him more than a cursory glance, "'but now I looked at him with curiosity. "'He was a little man, thick-set and stout, of thirty perhaps, "'with a round red face, from which shone small, dark, and very bright eyes. "'His black hair was cropped close to a bullet-shaped head.' he was dressed in a blue suit a good deal the worse for wear. It was baggy at the knees, and the pockets bulged untidily. You know what the duties are of a medical officer in an infirmary. One day is pretty much like another, and that's all I've got to look forward to for the rest of my life. Do you think it's worth it? It's a means of livelihood, I answered. Yes, I know, the money's pretty good. I don't exactly know why you've come to me. Well, I wanted to know whether you thought there would be any chance for an English doctor in Spain. Why Spain? I don't know, I just have a fancy for it. It's not like Carmen, you know. But there's sunshine there, and there's good wine, and there's color, and there's air you can breathe. Let me say what I have to say straight out. I heard by accident that there was no English doctor in Seville. Do you think I could earn a living there?' Is it madness to give up a good safe job for an uncertainty? What does your wife think about it? She's willing. It's a great risk. I know, but if you say take it, I will. If you say stay where you are, I'll stay. He was looking at me intently with those bright dark eyes of his, and I knew that he meant what he said. I reflected for a moment. Your whole future is concerned. You must decide for yourself.' But this I can tell you, if you don't want money, but are content to earn just enough to keep body and soul together, then go, for you will lead a wonderful life. He left me, I thought about him for a day or two, and then forgot. The episode passed completely from my memory. Many years later, fifteen at least, I happened to be in Seville, and having some trifling indisposition, asked the hotel-porter whether there was an English doctor in the town. He said there was, and gave me the address. I took a cab, and as I drove up to the house a little fat man came out of it. He hesitated when he caught sight of me. "'Have you come to see me?' he said. "'I'm the English doctor.' I explained my errand, and he asked me to come in. He lived in an ordinary Spanish house with a patio, And his consulting room, which led out of it, was littered with papers, books, medical appliances, and lumber. The sight of it would have startled a squeamish patient. We did our business, and then I asked the doctor what his fee was. He shook his head and smiled. There's no fee. Why on earth not? Don't you remember me? Why, I'm here because of something you said to me. You changed my whole life for me. I'm Stevens. I had not the least notion what he was talking about. He reminded me of our interview, he repeated to me what we had said, and gradually, out of the night, a dim recollection of the incident came back to me. I was wondering if I'd ever see you again, he said. I was wondering if I'd ever have the chance of thanking you for all you've done for me. It's been a success, then? I looked at him. He was very fat now and bald, but his eyes twinkled gaily, and his fleshy red face bore an expression of perfect good humor. The clothes he wore, terribly shabby they were, had been made, obviously, by a Spanish tailor, and his hat was the wide-brimmed sombrero of the Spaniard. He looked to me as though he knew a good bottle of wine when he saw it. He had a dissipated, though thoroughly sympathetic, appearance. You might have hesitated to let him remove your appendix, but you could not have imagined a more delightful creature to drink a glass of wine with. "'Surely you were married,' I said. "'Yes, but my wife didn't like Spain.' She went back to Camberwell. She was more at home there. Oh, I'm sorry for that. His black eyes flashed a bacchanalian smile. He really had the look of a young Silenus. Life is full of compensations, he murmured. The words were hardly out of his mouth, when a Spanish woman, no longer in her first youth, but still boldly and voluptuously beautiful, appeared at the door. She spoke to him in Spanish, and I could not fail to perceive that she was the mistress of the house. As he stood in the door to let me out, he said to me, "'You told me when last I saw you that if I came here I should earn just enough money to keep body and soul together, but that I should lead a wonderful life. Well, I want to tell you that you are right. Poor I have been, and poor I shall always be. But by heaven I have enjoyed myself. I wouldn't exchange the life I have had with that of any king in the world.'" You've been listening to Mr. Know-all and The Happy Man by William Somerset Maugham. Somerset Maugham, who wrote, "'To acquire the habit of reading is to construct for yourself a refuge from almost all the miseries of life.' That may sound like withdrawal into a private aesthetic sphere, but Maugham is full of surprises, and he also wrote, "'If a nation values anything more than freedom, it will lose its freedom,' And the irony of it is that if it is comfort or money that it values more, it will lose that too. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best.